0: We are here, we're worshiping the God of Jacob, and he is the God of sinners. He is the God who justifies sinners on account of his son, on account of his son alone. And so if you would, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Join me in doing that. He is utterly faithful and good to us always, and let's ask him for his help as we're going to open his word now. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven. You are holy and you're righteous and you're good. And we're none of those things. We come to a service like this in need of what only you can do for us. We trust that in a service like this, you get glory for yourself. And you do that as sinners cast themselves upon your son. We pray, Father, that you would use your word now to teach us more of yourself, teach us more about ourselves, teach us more about Christ. We pray that we would see him and that we would trust him. Do that work in our midst, we pray, and do it for Christ's sake. And We pray in his name. Amen. Friends, God's word is great. It is, the more you read it, the more you study it, the deeper you find it to be. It is full of so many things that make more sense of this world that we live in than anything else. It is full of so many things that sometimes you're shocked to read on the pages of such a holy book. It is the testimony that God has given the world about his plan of redemption that his son would accomplish. And he has determined in his wisdom and in his providence that he uses his word to impart faith to sinners. He uses his word to sustain the faith of weak people. He uses his word to nourish our faith. As we even prayed for him to do, he is always faithful as we look to the scriptures to teach us about himself, to teach us about ourselves, who we are before him. And he is faithful always to teach us about the one savior of the world, the only name under heaven, under which man may be saved. He will today Teach us those things with our passage. A text that, frankly, I mean, it seems it could have been written for some like insane Netflix drama. He will teach us those things. We're going to look today at Genesis chapter 25 and verse 19 through chapter 27 and verse 46. We have read the text already in our service this morning. If you have Bibles with you, you will be helped to be able to look at the text as I am Referring to it, highlighting things, observing things out of it. And so, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open that up. If you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to do the best that we can to put the words of the text on the screen behind me, and you can follow along even that way. My plan for us this morning I have four points in this sermon. We're going to be doing some reflecting and applying in those points as we go. And then I'm going to conclude our time with a couple of reflections from the text. So that is the roadmap. We will jump into point number one. Point number one is Rebecca's barrenness and the birth of Esau and Jacob. Rebekah's barrenness and the birth of Esau and Jacob. This is going to be chapter 25, verses 19 through 28. If you put your eyes on verse 19 of Genesis 25, we read some familiar words. These are the generations of, in this case, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. We've seen that formula a number of times in the book of Genesis. And as we've thought about, anytime you see that, these are the generations of, we are beginning a new section, a new narrative section of the book. This new section begins here in chapter 25, as it's delineated in our version, and will end in chapter 35. And it centers primarily on Isaac's son, Jacob, the 10 chapter section. Then in verse 20, you can put your eyes there. We see that Isaac was 40 when he married Rebekah. We considered that last week, how all of that came to be. In verse 21, there at the very beginning, Isaac prays to the Lord because Rebekah is barren. She is unable to have children. We have heard that song before. It's like Abraham and Sarah were verse one. Now Isaac and Rebekah are verse two. Keep in mind that they get married at 40 years of age. At least Isaac is 40. We don't know how old Rebecca is. Isaac is 40, and it's not until Isaac is 60 that the twin sons, Jacob and Esau, will be born. Again, we tend to think in such, I don't know, short-term ways. I mean, 20 years is a minute that they're waiting on children. The Lord in this, as he has been throughout the book of Genesis, as we've seen, is teaching his people how dependent they are upon him. And in particular, Because we understand rightly that Abraham having a son and Isaac having a son is very much like inextricably tethered to the promise of God to save. God is teaching his people that anything and everything that pertains to salvation has to come from him. Has to come from him alone. This is no human work. This is no situation where human achievement is going to accomplish anything. If you notice, barren women, women who are unable to have children, show up over and over again in the scripture. They keep showing up in the purposes and plans of God. In one sense, that kind of the woman who is barren, who wants children and can't have children, is hoping to have children, has been promised that she will have children, but yet has no children. She's waiting. That is a picture in one sense of the entire Old Testament. A redeemer has been promised. The offspring of Abraham has been promised. This offspring through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But when will he come? That's the constant refrain of the Old Testament. Sarah and Rebecca vividly illustrate how God's people are waiting on God. To fulfill his promises. His promises in particular to come and save him. The second part of verse 21, if you put your eyes back there, Isaac has prayed to the Lord. And the, the text tells us the Lord grants his prayer. And God opens Rebecca's womb. She concedes. However, verse 22, the two children in the womb are literally like fighting inside of each other. Quite an experience that must have been. This is a foreshadowing, of course, of the striving and the enmity between the two sons once they are born. And it's a foreshadowing of the striving and the enmity between the two nations that descend from them, Israel and Edom. Rebecca doesn't understand what's going on. If this is from God, why is it this crazy inside of me? What's up with this? So she asks the Lord about it at the end of verse 22. And then in verse 23, he answers her. He says, there are two nations in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be divided. One will be stronger than the other. And the older, in fact, will serve the younger. Now, Genesis 25 and verse 23, in particular, that last piece, the older shall serve the younger, is cited by the Apostle Paul in one of the more controversial chapters in all the scriptures, Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 and verse 12 to be even more specific. So if you have a Bible with you, or if not, it's cool. We're going to get it on the screen. You can go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 9 in your Bible. We're going to look at just a few verses, verses 6 to 12 of Romans 9. We're going to spend a ton of time here. And I want to highlight some stuff from Romans 9 that may or may not be what you anticipate me saying. Don't know. We trust the Lord with them. What is Paul doing in Romans chapter 9? That's a huge question. In the flow of his letter, what's he doing? Well, he is defending. Because see, a lot of people, let me just interject. A lot of people think that Romans chapter 9 is this kind of isolated treatise on the sovereignty of God and salvation. That is a very inaccurate representation of what Paul is doing. It's occurring in the flow of his letter. What's he doing in Romans 9? He is defending the legitimacy of the promises of God. The fact that God will do what he said he would do. That's Romans 9. That his word has not failed. That's what Paul is arguing for. Think about it. There are all these wonderful promises. What's one of your favorite chapters in all the Bible? Romans 8. Amen. Everybody loves Romans 8. We should. Some of the greatest words in all of scripture in terms of the hope that we have. Resurrection hope unshakable hope. We will never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. But the reality is many Israelites, the people of God, many Israelites are rejecting the Christ. So it's like this, rhetorically speaking, it's like The reader of Romans is asking Paul. He anticipates this question. Paul, you're saying all these wonderful things about God's promises to us and his grace toward us and our security in Christ. But what about Israel? What about God's promises to them? He promised them a bunch of stuff. And here they are rejecting the Christ. What is going on? How can we know That the things that God promises us will come to pass. Put your eyes on Romans 9. As I put my eyes there, flip my Bible there. In verse 6, Paul, he's just mentioned how he's broken hearted. How the Israelites, his kinsmen according to the flesh, are not trusting Christ. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Genesis 21, 12. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. It is not to Abraham's physical descendants that God's salvific promises were made rather it is to Abraham's spiritual children, those who are of faith. Moving on, Romans 9 and verse 9. For this is what the promise said. This is Genesis 18:10. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. Do not miss verse 11. Though they were not yet born, they had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purposes might continue. Not because of human works, but because of him who calls. Do you see the point here? What's going on with Jacob? That's the question. Jacob, who, by the way, I mean, you heard the text read today. He's a punk at this point in his life. He's a jerk, not likable. Like slimy, conniving, manipulative, deceitful, don't like Jacob very much. What is going on with Jacob? It's this, that salvation has always been by God's grace through faith on account of Christ. That's the point. It's always been grace. How is it? Ask yourself this question when you're reading, for example, in Romans, you're reading Paul. How does Paul understand the Old Testament? It's very clear that he understands the Old Testament is about the redemptive plan of God that would be accomplished through Christ. It's clear that he understands that God's people have always been saved by Christ and on account of him. It's clear that he understands that the salvation of God's people has always been of grace, not merit. So the question is this, why does Jacob get mercy? Why does Jacob get mercy? You realize that every human being either gets Justice or mercy from God. Justice is fair. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. But why does Jacob get mercy? Is it because he was a more pious fetus than Esau? Is it because he was better behaved in utero than his brother and you're sitting there? You're thinking, no, bro, that's absurd. That's silly. Agree. Is it because God looked through the portals of time and saw that Jacob was going to be a stand-up guy? Also, no. Our text today is Exhibit A as to how that's not true. Why did Jacob get mercy? Jacob got mercy because he got mercy. He got mercy because of grace. He got mercy on account of Christ. He got mercy through faith that God gave him and wrought in him. That's your testimony too. It's my testimony. Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. I don't know. But he did that for me. He's done it for you. He's done it for all the saints of all time, and he will do it for many more should Christ hear. Jacob and Esau are one of countless illustrations of how God's saving work is not based on who's better or worse. It is not based on who's more sinful or less sinful. No, this is all according to grace and mercy. Over and over again in his word, God blows up every notion that we could ever have about how salvation should work from our perspective. Obliterates it. It does not work on human terms. Another big thing before we move on. We tend to always ask, instead of asking, why did God show Jacob mercy? We ask this question. Why did God not show Esau mercy? We get hung up on that. When we should ask, really, why would God ever show Jacob mercy? That's a better question. We should just go in with the default assumption God's going to show justice. He's going to be just. Why would he ever show mercy to a sinner like Jacob? You see, we always want God to pull back the curtain. We want him to pop the hood to show us how the sausage is made, right? To show us how things work, to tell us why they work the way they do. And here's the irony about us. When he does it, we generally don't like what he says. And then on top of that, We tend to, when he does tell us stuff, not only do we bristle, we tend to get hung up on all the wrong things. It's how we are. Even as his people, it's how we are. We get hung up on all the wrong stuff. The message, friends, of the law and the gospel, the message of the scripture, is the most incredible message in the world. God made us. He's way bigger than we can conceive. His justice and his righteousness are unlike anything we have ever seen. His holiness is off the charts, breaks our brains. This God is awesome. He is worthy of all of our worship. He's worthy of of all the glory we could ever give him. He's worthy of all of our praise and love and not one of us has ever given it to him. We should obey every law that God has given us and no human being who's a son or daughter of Adam has ever obeyed even a single one of God's commands. Really. God tells us that the payment for such rebellion, for such disobedience is our lives forever. And remember, he's the one who gave us our lives in the first place. So that is the message, the reality of God and the law. And then this same God bids us to come to him to find forgiveness of sin. This same God bids us to come to him and find absolution, guilt removed. This same God bids us to come to him for mercy that we might not get what we deserve. This same God bids us to come to him for grace, which is where we get all these incredible things that we could never deserve. And he bids us to come to him to receive his very own righteousness by faith. Come to me. This God, when he took on flesh, walked the earth and ministered, said, come to me and I will never cast you out. Come to me, all who are weary and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. and My yoke is easy and my burden is light and you will find rest for your souls. This same God says, come and drink of the water of life without payment and without money. Come, he says, believe in my son, cast yourself upon him. He has lived and suffered and bled and died so that all would be well for anyone who ever trusts in him. If you're going to get hung up on anything, if we are going to get hung up on anything that God ever reveals to us, Get hung up on this. Get hung up on grace. Get hung up on mercy. Get hung up on forgiveness. Get hung up on absolution from guilt. Get hung up on righteousness of God counted to sinners. Get hung up on the free offer of Christ to wretches like you and me. Back to the text. That was an extended reflection. Verse 24 of Genesis 25. In those few verses that follow through verse 26, we see that the twins are born. Esau comes out first. Jacob comes out second, holding Esau's heel. And then in verses 27 and 28, we get a description of the brothers and some divided loyalty. We're told that Esau came out and had hair and stuff on him. We already learned that about him. And in addition to that, we're told a little bit about these men, what characterizes them. Esau is a hunter. He's skillful in hunting. He's a man of the field where Jacob is quiet and dwells in tents. Then this, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. A little bro sesh going on, I don't know. And then Rebecca loved Jacob. It's like, well, how could this go badly, right? Seriously. All right, here we go. Point two, Esau sells his birthright to Jacob. Point two, Esau sells his birthright to Jacob. We're going to look just briefly at verses 29 to 34 of Genesis 25. All right, so some time passes. We're not given any details about the timeline. Jacob is cooking. Esau comes in from the field hunting, exhausted. By this language, I mean, this is like dude's about to collapse, right? Like he thinks he's near death, obviously. He's exhausted. He's hungry. He's thirsty. That's where he's at. Jacob is going to manipulate the situation to take advantage of his brother in need. To get his birthright, to get Esau's birthright as the firstborn. Suffice it to say, this is not loving your brother, right? This is not loving your neighbor as yourself. I think that's clear. To be fair, though, there is sin on the part of both brothers. It's not just Jacob. Esau should not have sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. Full stop. We don't want to be like that. I mean, the writer of the Hebrews says this, right? That Esau was unholy and sold his birthright for a single meal. Hebrews 12, 16. We don't want to be like that. We don't want to live based upon passions and cravings. Right? It leads to disaster. It's not good to do that. We don't want to live lives that are compulsive. Compulsiveness is not a virtue. And it tends to ruin lives, right? There's a very brief point number two after a very long point number one. So now we're going to point three. God's faithfulness to Isaac. Very simple. God's faithfulness to Isaac. We're going to look at chapter 26, verses 1 through 33, which if you're asking me is where the chapter should have ended, but they didn't ask me um, where to put the chapter division. So chapter 26, verses 1 to 33, God's faithfulness to Isaac. In verse 1 of chapter 26, we read that there is famine again. This time, God tells Isaac explicitly not to go to Egypt, because remember, Abraham had gone down into Egypt when there was a famine before. God's people will go into Egypt again. Jacob and his sons will go. But this time, God says, don't go there. Then in verses 3 to 5, God makes great promises to Isaac, and they are just like what he had promised to Abraham. Verbatim. Christ is all over it, too. The offspring through whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed is Christ. Right. He's there in verse four in particular. So these wonderful promises, these covenant promises are made to uh, to, uh, Isaac. Excuse me. And then the very next thing we read about, beginning in verse six, Isaac settles in Gerar in the land of the Philistine. Then verse seven, when the men of the place asked him about Rebekah, he said, yeah, she's my wife. Oh, no, she didn't. Or he didn't. Excuse me. He said, she is my sister, right? He is doing what his father did. We've seen this movie before as well. So many in the room may be fans of the Fast and Furious franchise. It's like nine of those. The, uh, you know, tell them that she's your sister saga has three installments already. Abraham twice, Isaac once. We're going to lie. We're going to deceive to protect our own skin. We have seen this before. He is doing what his father did. In this case, in verse 8, we see the text tells us that Isaac and Rebekah kept up the charade for a long time. And you see that when he had been there a long time. Don't know how long, but long. Abimelech, the king, who's probably a descendant of the Abimelech from chapter 20. Right. He looks out and sees Isaac. And Rebecca in an intimate moment. That's what's being communicated in the text. This is things that husbands and wives do that brothers and sisters don't do. So he sees this intimate moment and he confronts Isaac in verses 9 and 10. He's like, kind of like his predecessor had said, why why did you do this? Why did you lie to us? Why did you say that she's your sister? Like somebody would have maybe taken her and had relations with her and you would have brought ruin upon us. And then just in this shocking turn of events, I mean, Isaac says, well, I thought that you would kill me, which is exactly what Abraham had always thought. And another miraculous, providential, shocking turn of events, Abimelech acting in mercy, protecting Isaac and his family, says, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death in verse 11. It's very funny. The reasoning is always the same. right? I mean, Abraham and Isaac are always justifying what they're doing. They're like, they're going to kill us if we say that these women are our wives. When in reality, each time it's the other guys that respond with virtue. And these other guys even protect Abraham and Isaac and provide for them. It's clear that God is in this. Verses 12 to 33 kind of starts a new new little section. Isaac has become great. He's become wealthy. He's become formidable, just like his dad, to the extent that Abimelech asks him to go away. There's probably just not enough resources to go around. Then there's this little parenthetical note in verse 15 that the Philistines had filled the wells that Abraham had dug. And then Isaac is going to go about redigging those wells in this land that he's going to be given, right? He and his children are going to be given. We're going to redig these wells and give them the same names that Abraham gave them. Then in verses 23 and 4, Isaac goes up to Beersheba where Abraham had lived for a season. And the Lord comes to him again to comfort him and to reiterate his promises. And there Isaac builds an altar and calls upon the name of the Lord. So it is clear, in spite of his sin, that Isaac has some understanding of his covenant obligations to God and the promises that God had made to him. Right. Then in verses 26 to 31, Abimelech comes to Isaac. He's got the commander of his army and his advisor with him. Isaac's response is interesting. You know, like, why are you here seeing that you hate me and that you sent me away like you're always mean to me? Why did you come here? And it's like, hold up, bro. I mean, these dudes have been good to you. I mean, like they didn't they didn't exact the pound of flesh that they could have from you. They actually treated you well. They've done you nothing but good. They provided for you. Not the greatest of greetings. Very much like Abimelech had said to Isaac's father, this Abimelech says to Isaac that the Lord is clearly with Isaac. We've seen this. And so because the Lord is with you, we want to make a treaty with you. We want to make an oath, a pact with you that we will mutually agree to do each other well. We're not going to harm each other. They make the oath. Isaac prepares a feast for his guests, and then they depart. And then Isaac's servants in verses 32 and 3 let him know that they have struck water at the well at Sheba, which is Beersheba, the same place that his father had lived and sojourned for a season. So the whole point here, kind of landing this down on a wedge. In this whole section, it's like watching a replay of Abraham's life, is it not? It really is like the remix of Abraham's life, turning one hit record into two. That's what the Lord is doing. We should see that what was promised to Abraham is continued through Isaac. What was promised to Abraham is continued through Isaac. Just as God worked through Abraham, he is working through Isaac to bring about his purposes, to accomplish his plans. He will bring his promises to fulfillment, and he will do that in the face of of Isaac's sin, just like he did in the face of Abraham's sin. That's the takeaway of chapter 26. The faithfulness of God to do these good things on behalf of his people. Point four. Point four. Division and deceit in the family. Division and deceit in the family. So we're going to be looking at chapter 26 and verse 34 through the end of chapter 27. So beginning in verse 34 of chapter 26, the focus shifts back to Isaac's sons. Verses 34 and 5, we see that Esau has married two Hittite women, two Canaanite women. And this is not good in the family. These two women cause Isaac and Rebekah pain. It's very clear. Remember how Abraham was adamant to find a wife for Isaac who was not a Canaanite. Well, Esau doesn't seem to care about that. And it has not been good what it has done. Then beginning chapter 27, verse 1 and following. Relatively well-known account for many. In verses 1 to 4, we read how Isaac is getting older and his eyesight is poor. He desires to bless Esau, his firstborn son. Take notice of that. Isaac, in other words, Isaac is not innocent in this. Right. No doubt Isaac would have known what the Lord had spoken to Rebekah concerning their two sons. The older will serve the younger. But yet Isaac seeks to bless Esau because he favors him. This is a picture of familial dysfunction. Right. As we will see, Isaac plans to give Esau a blessing that contradicts the word from God that he had given to Rebekah. Don't lose sight of that reality. He tells Esau to hunt and prepare food, and as they eat the meal, he will bless his son. Then in verses 5 to 17, the scene kind of shifts. Rebekah is eavesdropping on this conversation between Isaac and Esau. Notice in verse 5 that Esau is referred to as his son, meaning Isaac's son. Then in verse 6, Rebekah is going to hatch a plan to profit her son, Jacob. Division everywhere, Right? Even the wording makes that clear. Jacob is not worried, though. It doesn't seem about anything except getting caught. He doesn't really object on the basis of any kind of morally upright reason. He's just thinking this through so as to not get caught. He's like, "Okay, mom, I hear you. But how can I deceive dad without him knowing that I'm deceiving him? That's the question. Like Esau, he's a hairy guy. I'm a smooth guy. What if we get found out? He's not worried about tricking his father or cheating his brother in an earthly sense. He's just worried about getting caught. And then Rebecca, she's all in on this, too. You see that she even says, verse 13, put your eyes there. If the plan fails, the curse, let your curse fall on me. She's in this, right? Verses 18 to 29, Jacob they, they, they handle the business, right? The plan is hatched. It's, it's in motion. Jacob goes to his father with the delicious food. It's clear throughout this whole thing that Isaac can tell that something's not quite right. He asks at multiple points. "Are you? Who are you? Are you really Esau? He can tell. Which is interesting because it puts Jacob in a position where he's going to just bold face lie multiple times. So Jacob lies initially, says he's Esau. Isaac then asks, well, how did you get back so quickly? How'd you go hunt, kill the game, make it and get here so quickly? Jacob doubles down. It's like, well, I've already lied to dad. I may as well now take the Lord's name in vain. Right? It's because the Lord, your God, blessed me. It's taking God's name in vain. Isaac asks Jacob to come near so that he can feel him, right? He knows his voice. I'll be able to touch my son and tell if it's really Esau or not. Jacob comes. Isaac even acknowledges again, the voice is Jacob's voice. He can hear it. But the hands with the goat skin on them, the hands are the hands of Esau. Isaac asks one more time. If Jacob is really Esau, third time, Jacob says, I am. When Jacob comes near to Isaac again, Isaac can smell Esau's garments that Jacob is wearing. This was a shrewd move on the part of Rebecca. And so he blesses Jacob, thinking that he's Esau. You can't make this stuff up, right? Verses 30 to 40, the drama, if possible, gets even thicker, right? It's... Seems, the way that the text is worded, that Jacob and Esau practically pass each other on the way in and out of Isaac's tent. Esau comes in to see his father with a meal prepared, and then Isaac realizes what's happened, and he trembles violently, the text says. Esau is furious. He asks, he pleads with his dad to give him a blessing, not to take back the one Given to Jacob, clearly that wasn't on anybody's mind. Once this blessing is pronounced, it's pronounced. The word stands. But dad, can you not give me another blessing? You only have one. And then Isaac speaks a word to Esau that could hardly be called a blessing. Then in verses 41 to 46, the fallout of the deceit occurs. We read and... Verse 41, how Esau says to himself, my father, he's going to die soon. And when my dad dies, I'm going to kill my brother. I at least love dad enough, I guess, that I don't want to make him grieve that while he's still living since he's dying soon anyway. But as soon as dad's gone, I'm killing Jacob. Rebecca gets wind of this and sends Jacob away to stay with her brother Laban. We got to get you out of town. So your brother doesn't kill you. I mean, sincerely, like this, this is, this is very, very difficult stuff. I mean, we we all have experienced dysfunction in various relationships that we have. This is extreme. I mean, brothers wanting to kill each other and parents favoring sons to this extent. This is tough. Then verse 46 serves as yet another glimpse into the division and animosity that seem to exist in this household. Rebecca's statement in verse 46 is a little bit, it's a little melodramatic, right? I mean, it's a little hyperbolic and over the top. Like, I loathe my life because of the women that Esau has married, the son that she doesn't like anyway. I hate his wives, right? And then she effectively says, if Jacob Again, the apple of her eye. If Jacob were to do something like that, that would really be it. I would have no reason to live anymore. It's very clear that Rebecca has disdain for Esau, yet she favors Jacob in spite of the fact that he is a deceitful and manipulative man. It's very interesting how we work as human beings. Very interesting. Nothing has changed. There's nothing new under the sun, right? Remember, too, like, what God had said to Rebecca about her twin sons, about how the older would serve the younger. And then she favors Jacob anyway. It's, I, I don't like to speculate about the text, but you don't need me to tell you how we can use even God's word to justify all kinds of sinful behavior. Right. In all of this, no one in the family, hear me, no one in the family has acted in an honorable or upright way. Nobody. And at a human level, no one wins here. You want to look at the fallout of sin? Read this. Sin ruins lives. Even in the household of God, it ruins lives. If we are left to ourselves, even as God's people, this kind of stuff is what we do. Were it not for the grace of God, this is what we do. So now, just a couple of closing reflections. The first one is shorter than the last. First of two closing reflections. It's not really titled, but I'll give it to you this way. If we could blow this thing, meaning God's plan of redemption, if we could blow it up, we would. We even try to sometimes. Yet God is not thwarted. He will save his people. That's sort of my long title to this first reflection. The Lord works not apart from sin and deceit. God works even through sin and deceit to accomplish his holy purposes. That is how marvelous he is. This is evidenced at multiple points in this passage. But most pointedly, in the deceit of Rebekah and Jacob to trick Isaac into blessing Jacob rather than Esau, all while Isaac wanted to bless Esau contrary to God's word. I don't know if you can track with all that. It is a mess. Rebecca and Jacob try to trick Isaac into blessing Jacob rather than Esau. All the while, Isaac wants to bless Esau contrary to God's word. What a mess. And what's what's incredible in all of this is that the Lord's plan is being advanced. I mean, it blows your mind. The takeaway from that now Not that anyone in this room would conclude it, but some have through history. The takeaway from that is not that God doesn't care about sin. The takeaway is not that sin doesn't matter, so just do whatever you want, since God's going to accomplish his plans anyway. Terrible conclusion. Contradict God's word at a million points. The takeaway is that God uses broken vessels. The takeaway is that the sins of man do not thwart God's purposes to save them. God is so great that he accomplishes salvation in spite of our sin and even through it. Exhibit A, it's the greatest sin in the history of the world. The murder of the Son of God. If you're not familiar with Acts chapter 2 verses 22 and 23, In Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, write them down and read them later. Both of those places, Acts chapter 2 is Peter at Pentecost. Acts chapter 4 are the disciples after they've been released from prison. And in both of those cases, they make it crystal clear that there were wicked people acting against the Lord Jesus Christ. Acting in sin and wickedness. And at the same time, what happened? was exactly what the hand of God had ordained to happen. How marvelous is God? He accomplishes redemption and holy ends through sin and deceit. It's astonishing. It's who he it is. It's what he does. Second reflection. The longer of the two closing reflections. I pray that as that lands on you, your, t- your thought is not even an inkling of, well, great, let me go out of this place and sin today. But your response is like, worship. What a God. What a God. Saves sinners like us. All right, second reflection. This is a shorter title. I don't even know that it's a title, but it's what's in my notes. The Old Testament is such a gift. The Old Testament is such a gift. We're going to think about this for a minute. I say that that way because I think many, some in this room didn't grow up in the church. So it might not apply to you the same way. Some in this room did grow up in the church. And I don't know that many of us grew up in a church environment where we even knew what to do with the Old Testament. The Old Testament, as you read it, is existentially true. What I mean by that is that it so resonates with your experience as a sinner in a fallen world. Does it not? It resonates with our experience of our own lives and our hearts. So we've made this observation in ways before about the gift that the Old Testament is, but we are going to keep making. If the Lord tarries, we're going to keep making it for years and decades in this church. Because my desire as one of the pastors here is to see, to help us see more of how God works and to see more of how he loves us. And because I want to stoke in our hearts a love for God's word and a love for the Old Testament that maybe we have never had before. That's the goal. Because all of this comes from the Lord. What a sadness that in so many churches, even conservative Bible believing churches, that the vast majority of this book is not preached. Because we don't know what to do with it. Consider Jacob. He manipulated his brother who was exhausted and hungry. He schemed with his mother in order to trick his father and cheat his brother. He had significantly contributed to strife in the family that resulted in him having to leave town for like a decade. If anything, we should look at Jacob in these chapters and conclude, those are ways I'm most definitely Should not act. Those are things I most definitely should not do. We've done some of that here even today. We've been clear and honest about sin. And what it does. We ought not do it. It will ruin us. But the even greater purpose. Of this book. Is that God makes promises. To this man. Jacob. God blesses this man. This man is reckoned righteous in God's sight. How in the world? I mean your, your question in mind should be, how in the world is that possible? When I read this, it's because he believed in the seed that was promised to Adam and Eve. the same one in whom Abraham believed. That's how? So too for us, though our lives are no better than Jacob's or Esau's for that matter. God loves us and forgives us and cleanses us and reckons us righteous on account of Christ. So we should see ourselves in the pages of the Old Testament, in the lives of the people there, but not in the places we tend to look. This allows us, friends, to live and talk with one another in ways that have not always been common in the church, to be honest about our lives. Let me be very clear, again, clear. The angle here in saying the Old Testament sets us free to honestly struggle with sin. The angle is not, let me tell you how sinful I am because there is some kind of badge of honor for being a wretch. That's ridiculous. There's no honor in sin. It's not a contest. It's beyond ridiculous that Christians would ever conclude such a thing. The angle is not, let me tell you how sinful I am because sin is okay and we all do it. Again, ridiculous. Sin may be normal, but it is never okay. The angle The goal in this is let me tell you how sinful I am so that we can rejoice in how merciful our Savior is. That's the angle. Let me tell you and you in return tell me how sinful you are so that we can rejoice in how gracious our God has been to us. The angle, the goal is so that you will know, I say this as a pastor of this church. This is like Paul says in 1 Timothy 1. The angle, the goal here is so that you will know that if God has been patient and merciful with a wretch like Justin Perdue, he will be with you. Patient, merciful, gracious, steadfast love and faithfulness. It's what he does. Many of us have been what I might call flannel boarding the Old Testament our entire lives. Anybody who grew up in Sunday school knows what I'm talking about. It's not a slight. For many of us, it's what we were taught to do. The way that many of us learn the Old Testament is that it's sort of a collection of stories. You know, everything's like pastel colors and happy and all of that. Heroic and great stories, you know, of Noah and the ark, of Abraham and his many children, of Judah's blessing, of Aaron in his high priestly garb, of David and Goliath, right? But what we don't often get is Noah getting drunk and passing out naked in his tent. We don't get Abraham lying and selling out his wife to protect himself twice. We don't get Judah, the prostitute user. We don't get Aaron, the idol maker. We don't get David who wanted Bathsheba and had her husband murdered and sits before a prophet who comes to tell him effectively what he's done. And he's outraged to which Nathan, the prophet says, you are the man. We don't get that. And then there's Jacob. Now, the book is not written on Jacob yet. God isn't done with him yet. Amen. We'll see that in the coming weeks. God will work in this man's life, but he is a liar. He is a deceiver. He's a manipulator. He's a cheat. So sometimes, at least the way that I know I often was taught growing up, we look at the lives of Old Testament saints and we see some Good things to emulate. Now, that's all I ever was taught was the good stuff to try to copy. In a better situation, you might be shown some of the bad things to avoid. But here's the kicker. For most all of us, the lessons that we left from the saints in the Old Testament were either do this like so-and-so or don't do this because you see what it did to so-and-so implication the moral considerations are what God wants us to know from this text full stop morality morality is good it's secondary though in the scripture it has to be when somebody effectively says like do this or avoid this that's the point of Genesis or Exodus or Leviticus or pick your text it's like nah bro The thing above all things that God wants us to know from this or any passage is that Christ is a savior. That he did come. This one where like there's all these pages and it's like, who is he? He's a son of Abraham. He's a son of Isaac and Jacob. right? He's a son of David. Who is he? When is he coming? How long until our savior arrives? He came. And he will see our salvation through. That's the point. Always. Any other application we make has to only be seen through that lens. The main takeaway, we're nearly done. The main takeaway from the lives of these people, the Old Testament saints, is not about them or us. It's about God. Far from trying to whitewash the stories of the Old Testament brothers and sisters. We should treasure them. As we read stories of these men and women, we are reading about ourselves. As they struggled and schemed and failed and sinned, God kept calling them to repentance, calling them to faith, calling them to himself, calling them his own. F. Scott Fitzgerald once said, Show me a hero and I'll write you a tragedy. Well, Saints, we serve a God who has said over and over again in His Word, Show me a sinner and I'll write you a story of redemption. We should thank God for stories in the Bible about sinners. We should love those stories. Thank God for the story of a liar and a cheater named Jacob. Because in and under his story, we see the story of the God who so loved liars and cheaters that he took on flesh and lived and suffered and bled and died and rose again in order to save. Praise be to his name. Let's pray. Our Father, how astonishing is it that we can even call you Father? We are unworthy to be called your children, yet you have made us so in Christ. And it's amazing that you will not hold our unworthiness over our heads for eternity, but will welcome us into your joy forever. Give us faith to trust your promises. Stir in our hearts love for you and love for each other. Stir us up unto good works and in your grace, keep us from sin. We pray that you would use your word to do that, that you would use everything that we've done this morning, the singing and the praying and all of it, and use this table that we are now coming to. Feed us in our souls on Christ, we pray and we pray in his name. Amen.